Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. feel like they're not represented over and over and over again and it helps perpetuate these divides that we have. The goal behind OVBC was to address some issues that Adam had been frustrated with in his for-profit opinion research work. Things like underrepresentation of communities of color, people from rural areas, and how that impacts the information that communities and community leaders have in order to make decisions and identify priorities for their community. All right, folks, this week, we are very excited to bring you a sponsored podcast from our good friends at the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center, OVBC. If you are a reader of our weekly newsletter, The Liftoff, you know that they're a relatively regular contributor. They'll give us data from their ongoing surveys, their panel that tells us a little bit about what Oregonians think about specific policy issues. But what we're here to talk about in this episode is not the ongoing surveys. That is a very cool thing that they do. But what we're here to talk about today is the OVBC 2023 Typology Project, which is something completely separate and actually builds on a tradition that's happened over decades in this state of statewide nonpartisan public opinion research that paints a picture of what Oregonians think on different policy issues and what their values are and sort of helps group Oregonians together into like-minded folks to paint a picture of who lives in this state and what the folks in this state want from their government, what their beliefs are, what their values are, as indicated by the name of the Oregon Values and Beliefs Study and now Center. So in this episode, we talked to Amory Vogel. She is a friend of the podcast. Longtime listeners will remember our episode with her last year. She's awesome. She is, I believe the title is Associate Executive Director of the Center. And in this episode, we talk about that history over decades of public opinion research, how this builds on that and will contribute to the next 10 years of our understanding of the values and beliefs of Oregonians. We talk about cluster analysis and what that actually means. And we use a case study of 2017 research done by Policy Interactive, which is a group based in Eugene that sort of sorts Oregonians into different political categories and rejects or undermines the notion that it's a clean political spectrum between conservative on the right and liberal on the left. So we'll talk through that case study in this episode. It's actually very interesting. And then we'll conclude with some logistics of how to participate, how to be involved in this survey, and a pitch for all of our listeners, including you right now, to participate and to make sure your voice is heard and your values are included in this survey. We've got links in the description of this podcast for how you can participate. But with that, we will jump into the episode. Thanks again for listening. And here's Amory Vogel. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. 
All right, Amory Vogel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. We are excited to have you back, and thank you to the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center for being a partner on this episode. But this is a super interesting episode because it's an opportunity where every single person who is listening to this podcast, at least those that live in Oregon, could be part of something very cool. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, can you refresh the memory of folks who maybe, I guess it's been like a year or so probably since we had you on the podcast the first time. What is the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center? What do you do? Yeah, I think it's actually been almost exactly a year, which is a little crazy. So the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit that does statewide opinion research in Oregon. We were founded by Adam Davis, who some people may know from his work at DHM. He was also a founder of DHM. And part of the goal behind OVBC was to address some issues that Adam had been frustrated with in his for-profit opinion research work. Things like underrepresentation of communities of color, people from rural areas, and how that impacts the information that those communities and community leaders for those communities have in order to make decisions and plan and identify priorities for their community. We also use a general population sample instead of a likely voter sample. Mm. And what that means is that a likely voter sample, as a lot of your listeners probably know, those folks tend to be older. They're more likely than the general population to be white, to have more formal education, Mm. higher incomes, and more of the sample gets drawn from the metro areas. So again, we're looking at underrepresentation for rural communities. They don't have the information that they need in order to do work. And we've got a lot of tough stuff we need to work on right now in Oregon. The basic divide is like, you'd survey likely voters if you want to know what's going to happen in an election, but that might give you a skewed version of how people are actually feeling including the populations who are less likely to vote is basically the divide. Yes. And a consequence of that is it helps perpetuate these divides that we have because Mm. people feel like they're not represented over and over and over again. And the people that don't have as much voice in decision-making, it's just one more, you know, poke in the eye Mm -hmm. that their opinion and their voice and what they want for their area doesn't matter. So, People probably know, our listeners at least, will probably know the Oregon Values and Belief Center or OVBC for you contribute to the liftoff pretty regularly. You do research. You've got sort of like ongoing research, right? Like what exactly does that look like? What's the pacing and what kind of stuff are you researching? Yeah, so we had monthly surveys for a couple of years. We've actually shifted to bi-monthly surveys because now we're getting so many requests for special projects that we weren't able to maximize our analysis and processing of the data that we were producing. And we want to be able to help these folks that are asking us for specific information that they need to do their work. So now we're doing it every other month and then some special projects thrown in the mix as well. And we send out an invitation to our OVBC panel, anybody in Oregon or counties that border Oregon in Washington, Idaho, and California, they can join the panel. They earn points for taking surveys, just like you would with a professional survey panel. And they can cash them in at like as a Fred Meyer gift card or through Venmo or PayPal, or they can donate them to an Oregon nonprofit. So 
we will, I'm going to bury the lead a little bit more, but I wanted to say that because what we're here to promote today with the OVBC 2023 typology project is not the thing that if you're currently participating or if you're reading about survey results, what we're talking about today is something different. And in addition to that, but before we get to the typology project, the organ values and beliefs studies, which preceded the center that you work for. Can you talk about what those studies were and how they're sort of, they're leading to this path of the 2023 project? Yeah, so the first Oregon Values and Beliefs study was conducted in 1992, and it went along with Oregon benchmarks. And the concern was, you know, we have all these things that we're trying to address in the state, and we're working on them. And maybe we make an improvement, but if people don't believe that there's an improvement, does it really matter? So, you know, if people don't believe that they have clean drinking water, how much does that really matter if they actually do have clean drinking water? Hmm. So figuring out things like that, their perceptions of public services, what their priorities are for public services and public funding, what is most important to them, and like the core values and beliefs that unite Oregonians. And those things don't get talked about a lot, but we have some pretty strong core values and beliefs that all Oregonians agree on and agree are important. So started in 1992, they conducted another decennial survey in 2002 and another in 2013. So now we're in 2023 and we're building on that research with this big OVBC typology project. So the idea is basically you're creating a longitudinal bank of data that you can compare, like how have our beliefs as a state evolved or changed over a period of decades? Exactly. And I mean, you were alive in 1992, I think. I was born in 92. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If it was before January 23rd, I was not here yet. Oh, okay. I, I think it probably was after January 23rd, but I don't remember for sure. But you think about how much our state has changed during that time. And so it can be really valuable to see what people thought then and what people thought now, how some of their values and beliefs have changed. Like some things around, especially mental health have really shifted. Mm -hmm. People used to see that really as a personal responsibility issue. And now people have really shifted in that there's a lot of concern and concern about stigma around mental health and desire for access to services. So having that data over time can be really valuable and interesting. And it can also tell us like where we need to do more work, especially around communications and telling people about the good things that their government is doing for them. So can you describe what is exactly the typology project? How is it structured? Like, how's it going to work? So the typology project, as you mentioned, is not the regular surveys that we do. Although We did open it up to our panel. Those folks still get their points for participating, but we also opened it up to the general public. There is a drawing for Visa cash cards if you participate that you can opt into. So everybody gets something, but it's asking questions that rather than being like topical or addressing a certain urgent need or immediate need, it's getting at those core values and beliefs that, you know, sometimes divide us and sometimes unite us. And then at the end of the survey, we will take the data and perform cluster analysis. And that's something that we don't usually do with our regular surveys. It takes a lot more time and effort and can be a little tricky, but we think it's valuable, and this, especially in this instance, 
to help people understand like where people fall, what it is that aligns us and how we can work together even when we aren't on the same page. Before you move on from that, can you explain what a cluster analysis is? We were talking briefly about it and we'll do a, a little case study here, but it's a fascinating premise. Yeah. So it's statistical analysis, which I'll be totally honest, this is not my specialty. I I do the other side of things, but I do sort of conceptually understand. So feel free to look this up on YouTube instead if you need an explainer later. (laughs) But basically, cluster analysis doesn't assume what is going to segment these groups into like differently aligned groups. And the idea is that each cluster is more similar to one another than they are to the rest of the group. Mm -hmm. So for example, we're using some research that has been baselined from past studies conducted by Policy Interactive and by Pew Research. So Pew did it at the national level. Policy Interactive did it in Oregon. They also included some sample from outside Oregon, but politically similar to Oregonians. And they ran the cluster analysis. They had to run it a bunch of times in order to get it so that it was statistically aligned enough. Hmm. All the numbers work out that, you know, you can say this group, they're all more similar to each other than they are to anybody else in the group. And that ended up coming out with eight groups. So that's even an additional variable. Like, for example, Pew has nine groups in their 2021 study. Policy Interactive ended up with eight groups in their 2017 study. So you you don't know even ahead of time how many groups you're going to find. I love the starting point of like no assumptions about what the groups will be because I think we make one very big assumption. We make lots of assumptions, but one very big assumption in American politics, which is got the red jerseys and the blue jerseys, and maybe you'll create a subcategory of independence or maybe tiny subcategories of third parties. And like, that's how we group people. And we think of it as like a spectrum And like, there's the far left and then the center left and then the middle and then et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on. And that's kind of how we conceptualize the people who vote and the people who represent the voters in political bodies. But the 2017 Policy Interactive Cluster Analysis, like you mentioned, creates eight groups. I'm going to read an excerpt from the OVBC one pager on this. Rather than a conventionally smooth gradient of left or blue to right or red, This large 66% voting block, which I'll talk about in just a second, reveals a graphic checkerboard matrix of blue and red when measuring ideological worldviews. So what I think it's saying, and we'll get to the categories because I think this is just a good case study so folks kind of have an example of what we're talking about. There's solid liberals as one category. That's 17% of the population. There's core conservatives as another category. That's 17%. 66% are in the middle. And what those six categories in the middle demonstrate is that it actually isn't a gradient. And the different categories might be like, even the opportunity Democrats might be red on things. Whereas like in a sort of unpredictable way, when you look at, at least at some of the prompts that I was reading through on this one pager. So can you correct anything I said incorrectly in that description <laughs> or add any context? No, you did great. Yeah, that is exactly right. And and if you look at the one pager, that is what it looks like. It looks like a checkerboard of red and blue. And what we're looking at, what you and I are looking at, and people can go online and find this. I'll give the link and cool. we can put it in the YouTube video Great. notes. It'll ask a question and people have to decide it's an A or a B. And it's really, it can be really tough. So for example, government regulation of business is necessary to protect the public interest or government regulation of business usually does more harm than good. And you can only choose one or the other. And 
some of these topics are even more difficult. So what we end up with is like, it's not as simple as red or blue or Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. There are issues where blue people fall farther to the right and issues where red people fall farther to the left. And when we make assumptions about where people are going to fall, that's not really helpful. These are the eight categories, which I'd love, like, if you have a short description of these, just so folks can try to place themselves. <laughs> got the solid liberals. Then you've got a group called the Opportunity Democrats. But what are Opportunity Democrats? So for the most part, they favor Democratic candidates. So they vote Democrat most of the time. They have the highest income of all groups. And they lean towards four conservative worldviews, though, personal mm -hmm. efficacy, growing the economy, and wasteful government. And then they're strong on 13 liberal worldviews. So you can see how they're still end up blue because there's 13 liberal worldviews, but they have four conservative worldviews that they consistently lean towards. The next category is disaffected Democrats. What are those? What's that category? They also almost at about the same rate. So opportunity Democrats, 89% favor Democratic candidates, 88% of disaffected Democrats favor Democratic candidates, which seems confusing. So we're calling them disaffected. They also lean towards four conservative worldviews, but they're different. Different worldviews. I mean, some of them are the same. Some of them are different. So country first, which... Oh. You know, we advertise that as a very conservative worldview. Mm -hmm. And these disaffected Democrats, that's one of their core values. Personal efficacy, similar to the opportunity Democrats, small government, and that government is wasteful. The next group, like, changes labels. They're no longer described as Democrats. They're described as young liberal consumers. <laughs> Tell us about that group. Yeah. Do you feel too seen there, Ben? Or... <laughs> I, do, I, do we have an age cutoff for young? Is uh, 35 and uh, under? <laughs> I mean, probably like that's what the standard would be is 35. So you still make it. Um, <laughs> and this Go is definitely, years. this is an even younger group. And you were what probably is, in this group when this was done. What does the consumers part mean though? That is confusing to me. Is it like, it yeah. implies like maybe less sensitivity towards climate change or something? I don't know. That is a component. So 30% think climate change is human caused. That's only 30% though. That's and a I, low number. In I a think that, and this, yeah. And especially for young folks, I would say that that's probably higher now. 41% favor cap and trade. Only eight of 25 worldviews lean conservative, none strongly. And the only archetype indicating favorability towards increased consumption. They see Republicans as a greater threat to democracy than Democrats, but they see both parties as a threat. 16% of them see both parties as a threat. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's um, actually, I can understand why they're grouped next to the next group, which has my favorite name of all, the apolitical country first libertarians. Can we call it the Alex Titus group? I don't know, but I assume he would find himself in that group. <laughs> And they are also a younger group of people. So 34% hmm. of the young liberal consumers were 18 to 24. 31% of the apolitical country first libertarians are 18 to 34. They are low on political discourse, though. So Alex may have, you know, pushed himself out of that group. What is low on? Oh, like they don't want to talk about politics? Yes. Understandable. Not They are definitely not listeners of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you never know. Maybe they just, maybe they want to listen and not talk about not it. Fair, fair. Yeah. 
they are the group that most strongly expresses that both parties are a threat to democracy. So 46%. Does it say, I'm assuming the libertarian part means that they favor Republican candidates over Democrats? 49% favor Republican candidates. So yes-ish. What's the Democrat number? I actually don't have that in front of me. But it's lower than 49, not 50. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because there's a chunk that'll be like zero. Sure. Okay. Market skeptic Republicans? Yes. So market market skepticism uh, generally considered a more liberal phrase than uh, Republican. Yeah, exactly. And 70% favor Republican candidates. This group also has a gender slant. They tend to be male. They strongly support campaign finance reform and reducing toxic political discourse. Generally disfavor government programs, but lean toward environmental protection. 31% support cap and trade and 70% favor redirecting gas tax to public transport or reducing driving. That's so interesting. Not a thing that you would like, how does that fit into the Republicans in our normal worldview? <laughs> but there it no, is. Well, well, so the, and then the, the last group before core conservatives is progressive mm-hmm. conservatives, which I have no yeah. conception of what that would mean. <laughs> right. I mean, it sounds like it's contradiction. But obviously, a lot of these do. 64% favor Republican candidates. So that's lower than those market skeptic Republicans. 12 out of 25 liberal worldview leaning typology statements. So they're almost 50-50. In the typology, the like liberal versus conservative worldview. Yeah, choosing those questions, which one. But they're conservatives and favor Republican candidates. They have a strong conservative view on the value of hard work and personal initiative and efficacy. They have a female slant Hmm. and an apolitical slant. And 37% think climate change is human caused, although 50% support cap and trade. So, So, and and Policy Interactive noted, I know that you will be interested in particular to hear, this group might be closer to old school Republicans like Tom McCall than contemporary Republicans. God rest Tom McCall's soul. Great man. Listen to the Tom McCall podcast. Also the Vicatia podcast, who I actually, he might have been the closing of that category as a formidable political group, at least in electoral politics. I was actually thinking when we were talking about this, when you read those categories and you group people that way, it feels to me like some of those groups are entirely unrepresented in electoral politics. Like, I was trying to think of like legislators, for example, who might be placed uh, or or, or I, I should be more precise, whose voting record would place them in these different categories. And there's some categories where I'm like, I'm not sure that there's anyone, let alone like a sizable percentage of the legislature. And I'm maybe there's a bit more diversity in Congress because it's bigger. I actually don't know. But yeah, I just I love the cluster analysis as a tool for figuring out what people actually believe, because it instantly sort of strikes down the conventional narrative of how to think about people and what their political beliefs are. I start, God, (laughs) Alex actually used to talk about this. I think it came up on one episode, how like people who work campaigns and talk to like large groups of voters or like a large group of voters over a period of time and have lots of one-on-one interactions, understand that so many voters have like beliefs that contradict the spectrum narrative. Like there's like strong liberals who you know, don't believe in who think climate change is a hoax, but like always vote for Democrats. And there's like Republicans who this is probably more common, but like Republicans who think the NRA is awful and thinks that we should pass gun like and it just it it becomes a lot more confusing of a picture. But what we should say about this 
you all, because it's a cluster analysis, you're not accepting those eight categories and saying, okay, we're going to resort Oregonians into these eight categories. You actually don't know what the categories will be, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which makes it a little crazy going in. It's like going in blind. You don't know how this is going to shake out and what it's going to be that aligns people into these groups. So and, you know, I, in the work that we do, I can see like some of these, it's like, oh yeah, I know those people are still there, but then that may not be what ends up defining that group anymore. Like the group itself may have changed or statistically it may have to be divided differently in order to make it a nice, neat package that makes sense from a statistics perspective. So is the methodology you're going to use similarly, like you give binary choices and then people pick one or the other and that's how you sort yes yeah it is and most of the a lot of the questions are the same maybe even most of the questions are the same there's some that definitely had to be updated just because the world has changed so much since then but and we added some of our own that we feel are you know either especially important to Oregonians or especially indicative of the value that we see show up among Oregonians so it is mostly the same questions, but I, I think we're going to see changes in what defines these groups. Well, and yeah, because I think naturally the issues that are salient at any given moment in the news, in the political discourse, like, you know, we're definitely talking on the, the foreign policy front is like one place that has probably changed dramatically in the last 10 years, right? Like we've got much higher tensions with China. There's a literal war between Russia and Ukraine. We pulled out of Afghanistan. That's one category that probably comes up less in this, but like things change dramatically. So the same people might answer the same question differently because of how they're thinking about or what they've seen, how the world has developed. One quick actually closing thought on the policy interactive study mm -hmm. that I think is an important takeaway that I hope, and I'll ask you like how the results of the survey might be used. OVBC language says that the policy interactive research concluded that regardless of political orientation... Oregonians can find common ground on key public policy issues. So like the high point takeaway from this like complex checkerboard of sometimes contradictory political beliefs is that actually consensus or at least common ground is still broadly possible in this state, which I think is an incredibly optimistic finding in a very polarized time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I talk to people that are community leaders or policymakers and decision makers all the time. And what I see a lot is that people don't, even people that are trying to pay attention to what their community wants and what their greatest issues are and priorities, even people that are paying attention to that still see us as really divided. And we've done so many studies and mostly we're not that divided. It's just that we hear so much from the loud people on the ends of the spectrum that are divided. And people take that to be the voice of everyone else. When for the most part, the people in the middle just aren't being as loud and don't want to engage with those people either. I mean, it's not, I'm sure you've had the experience of, of being <laughs> shouted at for some reason. It's not fun to be around. So, you know, people, if they don't feel strongly at one end or the other, they're less likely to speak up about something. And community leaders, I think, often take that as those people aren't there. 
my favorite story of being shouted out was I was doing a tour of a road in my district, which is a very high profile road. I'm sure you know the road that I'm talking about. I um, know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we, it was before I had taken office, but I like campaigned on this. It was an important issue in my community. And it was like me and the congresswoman who represents my district and the state senator was there and the mayor was there. <laughs> There's a guy in the left hand turn lane who was turning left and he's on the road. And he starts shouting at all of us. And he's saying like different things to different people, but I hadn't taken office yet. And his critique of me was, you're never going to see it. That guy never holds town halls. He never talks to his constituents. I haven't seen a single town hall from that guy. And I was like, I literally haven't even started yet. Of course, I haven't done a town hall. Anyway, that's just a story that reminded me of being yelled at by people. It actually doesn't happen as much as people think, at least for me. And in my, I don't think like state representatives, I asked a Republican colleague of mine a couple of weeks ago, actually during legislative days last week, I was like, what are your interactions like when you're back home, when you're doing your coffees and your town halls and stuff? And he's like, 99% positive. People are frustrated, but they're very rarely taken out on me, um, mm -hmm. which is, I think, mm -hmm. consistent. Okay. Before we break, I do want to cover a couple of like experiential questions for a potential taker of the survey. First question is, who should take this survey? What type of person should take the survey? Well, there are always groups that we especially want to take surveys because we want to oversample those groups. We want to make sure that they have like they're a sizable portion of the sample so that we can give more detailed information about their specific groups. And the groups that are the hardest to get are young people, BIPOC communities, and rural folks. So those people are, we especially want to take the survey. So if you know anybody that is in any of those categories, please especially pester them to take the survey. <laughs> but uh, everybody can take it, right? Like literally. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but we want every single Oregonian to take the survey. And sure, we know that's not going to actually happen, but that's the goal. If we can get every single Oregonian to take the survey, imagine the incredible information that we could give to somebody at the really hyper local level. Like we could give cities detailed information about what hmm. their specific community wants because we would have enough sample to break that down statistically and reliably. So the more people that participate, the better information we can get to your own community and the community that you care about. And yeah, so everyone but especially those particular communities. So if someone decides, okay, I'll do it, I will give in to the peer pressure and I will take the survey, how long is it going to take them and what kind of questions should they be prepared to like answer questions about? Yeah, that's a great question and very helpful before people sit down to take the survey because you don't want to be like, oh, shoot, I can't finish it. But there is a caveat there, too. Okay. So it usually takes it. It kind of depends. There are different types of people that take surveys. Some people just, you know, go through. They answer honestly, but they they're not writing a huge, long comment or anything like that. They may put like one or two words. Those people mm -hmm. that will probably take 15 minutes. Okay. We also have people that take surveys that will write a lot of information and in <laughs> questions. And if you are up for that, I am so happy to take that information. Everything that you put in there is valuable. We read all those comments and we find them so informative in how people talk about the issues that they care about. So those people are more than welcome to put as much in there as they want. And those people, it'll probably take a little longer, like maybe 25 minutes. And if you are taking the survey and you can't finish 
the internet is amazing. And when you open it back up, it will take you back to where you were. So if you do have to stop in the middle, that's okay. You can do it in more than one session as well. Break it into three, five minute chunks if you need to. Just pace it out. And what about like the topics or the categories of questions? Yeah, so it starts with those kind of tougher questions. And part of that is because, you know, we want people to get those out of the way. They are, it makes people feel like a tension inside of themselves to have to choose those Mm -hmm. really not always great choices. Mm -hmm. So those are right off the bat. There's about 20 or 25 of those. And honestly, you can get through them pretty fast because you only have two choices. And then after that, there are a couple of questions that are more related to like current things in Oregon. There's a couple of questions about election systems. There's a question about abortion. There's a question about equity and, and a question about local news. So a little smattering of kind of just general questions at the end. And then the demographic questions, because that helps us make sure that we have representation from groups at the appropriate levels when we do our final sample. So once the typology project is over and hopefully thousands and thousands of people have taken the survey, you will theoretically, I don't know if you've got people in-house or if you're going to hire like psychometricians or, you know, data analysts or whoever, who's going to figure out what categories of people there actually are. What do you do with the data? How, why should people feel like this is an important thing to do? Yeah. So that's actually another part of why we want people to participate too, is because We want people to know what questions are in there and we want them to be invested in the data that comes out and like to be having these conversations about, you know, I'm like a opportunity Democrat, which means I have some conservative worldviews. That's probably not what it's going to be, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. And especially like generationally in our family, my family isn't super political, but we talk about it because it's sort of weird to realize, oh, we're more aligned on some of these things than we realize. So we have people in-house and a contractor that will be doing all this processing and analysis. And as soon as it's ready, we will make it available to folks we do tend to share with a couple of partners ahead of time, but then we'll make it public and it'll be accessible to folks. If people want more detailed information than beyond what's there, we are always open to doing additional processing, but that would probably come with a fee because it will take us a chunk of time again. But we want people to have this information. So if you want it and it's a priority for you, then let's talk. But Oregonians will have access to this information too. And we'll put it up on our blog, which is where we put all of our research. You can find past WBC research there. And hopefully it'll be in the news as well. Well, we will definitely be featuring it on Oregon 360. We should do another episode when the data is ready and kind of walk through what are the categories? What did we learn? How have Oregonians views changed? But I think my pitch that I'll leave folks with, and then I'll turn it over to you for any like final thoughts or closing words is... I think a lot of folks often feel unrepresented or that their views aren't being heard or listened to. And I think that probably particularly true among younger folks. This is like a perfect opportunity to ensure that literally your specific views are not just represented, but given weight in a way that helps policymakers understand who they're supposed to be representing and serving. So this really is like a Whether it's a once annually opportunity or once in a decade opportunity, this is a really cool opportunity to make sure that the things you believe are true or the values that you hold 
are represented in a prominent statewide survey and data collection. So I hope everyone takes the survey. Omri, thank you for coming on. Any closing thoughts for the listeners of the podcast? I just, I hope you take the survey. If you want more information, we have a landing page for the project and these guys are awesome and I'm sure they'll put it in the YouTube notes for us. Yes, we um, and you're always welcome to reach out to me or our team. My email is avogel at oregonvbc.org. Cool. We will leave it there. Uh, thanks again for coming on the pod and listeners. Thanks for listening. We will see you back here next week.